Hello, and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Let's be frank, for even the most casual of sports fans, this was a difficult week. We lost two of the most beloved and respected people in the history of sports, even though one of them never even played, at least not professionally. And those two people are Bill Russell and Vince Scully, albeit they were both of a pretty normal age for passing, but as a matter of fact, relatively advanced compared to a number of people, but it's still, it still hurts, still hits quite hard. I'll, I'll talk first about Bill Russell, who was actually on a court, a field, etc., etc. So Russell, obviously, the first stat that stands out when it comes to him is 11-time NBA champion. He was one of only two athletes in North American professional sports, team sports, to win 11 championships. The other one is Henri Richard of the Montreal Canadiens. Russell helped lead the Celtics to eight consecutive championships. No other team has done that in the Big Four North American pro sports. He won two of those championships, as a matter of fact, as a player coach for the Celtics. And not just that, he was the first black coach, not only in NBA history, but the first black coach in American professional sports. He made the NBA Finals 12 times in 13 seasons, which will probably never happen again in any sport, at least at the professional level or, or even at the college level. Now, I, I say again that Russell and Henri Richard, 11 championships each, but the difference is Russell was... Uh, Russell, again, only played 13 seasons. By the way, part of... I, I never realized that part of the reason they lost the one final he did lose to the St. Louis Hawks was that he was injured and I think missed the last two games of the series, and they had beaten the Hawks already. So he maybe would have won 12. But, you know, R Russell, compared to Richard, Russell was the leader of that team by far. He was undoubtedly the best player on that team even though you had surefire Hall of Famers in Sam Jones, Bob Cousy, Tom Hines, and Satch Sanders. I think, I want to say he overlapped with Havlicek, but I couldn't tell you for sure. I think Casey Jones is another one. A lot of Hall of Famers on that team, not to mention one of the great coaches in the history of sports in Red Auerbach. But Russell was undoubtedly the face of the, was the, face of the team and perhaps the face of the organization in many ways, the face of the NBA, as a matter of fact. Henri Richard, undoubtedly a Hall of Fame player, well over 300 goals, which was, I think, close to 400 goals, which is big, especially for his time. And look, if you win 11, 11 championships, you're probably going to be a Hall of Famer. There's, You did something right. But he played 20 seasons. Russell won 11 titles in 13 years. Richard won 11 in 20 years and was not necessarily the quote-unquote bus driver. We probably think a lot more of Maurice Richard, 
his brother, the Rocket, Henri was more the pocket Rocket, there were a lot of, again, with Montreal, there were a lot of great players who have played for that organization. I couldn't give you all of them who played for Montreal at that same time. I don't know if he over, overlapped with Jean Beliveau, I want, I want to say yes, or Ivan Conway. Later on, I think it was Larry Robinson and Guy Lafleur. I think they actually might have been all together at one point, but all, but, and then going further back, I think Dickie Moore and you know Jacques Plante and then Ken Dryden, all these incredible Hall of Fame players, Serge Savard, Steve Shutt, number uh, Bernie Boom Boom Jeffrey on a number of incredible players who were in the Hall of Fame. But Henri Richard was not necessarily the best player on any given Montreal team. Bill Russell was really not just a bus driver, he was probably a pilot. Because no, nobody, nobody has and nobody probably will ever again in a team sport win 11 professional championships. At least in you know the four major sports. Because again, you think of soccer and you think of... You know, soccer, you play for multiple championships in a year, at least if you're on the European circuit, you're in South America, something like that. Bill Russell was not the most incredible offensive player, I would say, but, I mean, he may be the greatest pure defender. He's probably the greatest pure defender in the history of the sport. He averaged 22.5 rebounds per game. He recorded 51 rebounds in one game, 49 in a couple of others. He's a five-time NBA MVP. I believe the only other players to win that many, I believe Kareem won six, I think Jordan won five, and I want to say Magic Johnson won five. I think that's it. And that's very good company. So the NBA Finals MVP did not exist until 1969, that was Russell's final year as a player. And even though Jerry West won the MVP in that final, he lost the series, a series the Celtics actually won. They won a Game 7 in Los Angeles. And even though Russell, of course, never won the award, he is the namesake. It, it is now known as the Bill Russell NBA Finals MVP. He earned the NBA's Lifetime Achievement Award. I think a, a handful of players have done so. I would also say he ranks... It's, it's really tough to say who is the best. I tend to, to maybe say Ted Williams or Tom Brady because I rank them high, a little higher within their respective sports. But he is also one of the one of if not the most successful athletes in the history of one of the one of the great sports cities in Boston Boston with the second most championships of any city in pro sports at least in the in North America or or in you know the US and Canada and you think of Ted Williams for the Red Sox you think of Tom Brady for the Patriots you think of Bobby Orr for the Bruins uh, besides many others that could honestly that honestly rank fairly high on that list, from Carl Yastrzemski to Adam Vinatieri, Larry Bird, Phil Esposito, a number of others. But Bill Russell, first, most importantly, won more than all of those guys. I, I would not necessarily say he was the 
would not necessarily say he was the best athlete. I mean, it's so tough and it's so it's so subjective. But most important thing is he won more than any of those guys. And no matter how long Tom Brady lasts, I mean, really, you're tempting fate here. But I can't imagine Tom Brady's going to win 11 championships. I, I just can't, and certainly not in 13 years. I don't. I, you know, regardless of how many teams there were in the league at that time, you know, Russell compared to Brady today, it's still an insane statistic. I would also say one of the defining aspects of Russell's career was his matchup with Wilt Chamberlain. It's perhaps the most dynamic two-player matchup, head-to-head matchup in NBA history, or maybe even in sports history, I would say even more so than Magic versus Bird. I think that one was a lot more even and brought the NBA much more to popularity. But this was... I think these two guys were maybe the two best players to to consistently go head-to-head. Now, the titles, to be fair, were 11-2 in favor of Bill Russell. I also say that you know, it's so tough. I put both these guys in my Mount Rushmore of basketball. And I, I, I honestly, I think I take Wilt Chamberlain more so because he's a better, probably a better all-around player and a much better scorer. But most importantly, and well, on top of that, I think Bill Russell had a much better supporting cast and definitely better coaching any given you know, any any given year when you consider Chamberlain had to go from the Warriors, was unable to win, lost to Russell, had to go to the Sixers to win a title, and that and join forces with you know somebody like Hal Greer, and then had to join forces with Jerry West in order to finally win a title against the Knicks in a year when I, I believe I think Willis Reed might have actually been hurt in '72, but. You know, these two guys, most important thing, no matter what you think about who they were as athletes, who was the better athlete, who was the better player, Bill Russell won 11 championships and Chamberlain won two. And Russell never lost to Chamberlain in the final. Remember that, because the Sixers, of course, would not play the Celtics in the final. And then the Lakers had to beat the Knicks. So, you know, Russell, even though, again, you could say Chamberlain was the better, more complete player, maybe the better player, Russell fit into a team game more than anyone. He was, he was, and that's why we say, you know, Russell compared to an individual athlete, someone like a, an individual sport athlete, someone like a Jack Nicholas or Rafael Nadal or a Margaret Court or Novak Djokovic, people who are who have the most championships within their sport, but have more championships because there are, you know, more majors per year. Russell fit so much better into the team concept. Ultimately, you can be an incredible athlete. You can be the best athlete and not win as many championships as other people. But Russell just fit in at with and led the Celtics so well on the floor and on the bench that 
that's what made him such an incredible winner. You can be a better athlete than you are a winner. You know, that's why, like we mentioned, Tom Brady. I, I don't think Tom Brady has the best arm, necessarily, of any quarterback. Does, does it have the best deep ball? I, I think there are guys maybe you'd want more for a single game or, or a single play, like Drew Brees maybe, or Aaron Rodgers, or Peyton Manning. But Tom Brady just wins more than anybody. And Bill Russell not only had that characteristic, but exponentially, also, you know, retrogressively, but uh, because it was a, a previous time, but Bill Russell's ability to win is exponentially better than that of almost any other athlete at a team level. And Russell, again, you know, I think undoubtedly the best defender in the history of the game. doesn't matter about his size. He used his size to his advantage, and his size obviously benefited him, but just so intelligent and so physical around the rim when you put those two things together. Russell, on top of winning 11 titles with the Celtics and five MVPs, won two national championships, including a 55-game win streak at the University of San Francisco. Now, that really says something because, you know, University of San Francisco, we don't think of as like a UCLA or a Duke or a Kansas, Kentucky, one of those programs, UNC. But that's how important Russell was to that single program. And then Russell, on top of that, won an Olympic gold medal in 1956. Now, one huge thing about Russell off the court, for which he is you know, fairly well-known, but maybe not as recognized as someone like a, you know, a Jackie Robinson or someone like that, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for not only his on-court achievements, but his civil rights activism. And I knew he was a bit of a civil rights icon, but I did not realize that he led the first integrated basketball camp in the state of Mississippi. And of course, Mississippi is, I mean, that's about as deep south as you can probably go. And you think about the, the murder of, of Emmett Till around that time. And... Uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. trying to pass the, the, the Civil Rights Voting Act in 68. So, I mean, so much of the fight around getting the right to vote for African Americans, so much of that centered on the state of Mississippi. And so that, uh, and, you know, to know that someone like Bill Russell was going to be there just let a lot of African-American kids you know, realize they're not alone. They weren't alone. And it wasn't just, again, it's not, look, we still have racial tensions everywhere. But again, it wasn't really just the Deep South because I've mentioned this before. You know, when we talk about Willie O'Ree or, or other people, I, re, I reiterate the racial tension that is, even in recent years, so pervasive in the city of Boston, especially so in the 1950s and the 1960s, and it takes a very strong will, not just physically strong, but a very 
emotionally, mentally tough person to not only survive the public eye in that time, in that city, but to thrive. Bill Russell, again, may, may not be the best ever to play the game, but let alone athlete, but he will likely forever be the greatest winner and the greatest team player in the history of sports. Age 88, passed away peacefully. We don't really know too much about the circumstances of his death, death otherwise, but 88 years old, that's a, that's a long life, and may he rest in peace. Now, the other person, of course, I wish to discuss is Vin Scully, who passed away this week at the age of 94. Passed away last night, actually, as I record this, at the age of 94. Now, I relate a little more personally to this one, actually, because I've mentioned many a time about my time at Seton Hall and how much I wanted to go there, how much I wanted to be there because of how good their basketball program was, not just for, you know, people started enrolling in, you know, St. Peter's just because their basketball program was good. No, I, I went because I would have an opportunity to cover their basketball program. And because WSOU, I genuinely believe, is the best college radio station in the country, because I would have such a great opportunity to stay in the New York City area to cover sports for my school and for the biggest market in, you know, in North America. But even though I am so glad that I went to Seton Hall and do not regret it, do not regret one minute of my college application process or anything that I did at Seton Hall or anything that I have done since, because I am so glad where I am now. I've told a few people, not, not a lot of people actually realized that Seton Hall was my backup school. My number one was Fordham. Now, if you're not from this area, Fordham University is in, well, its main campus is in the Bronx, near Arthur Avenue, not too far from Yankee Stadium. Beautiful campus. Uh, they have a second. They have another campus in at Lincoln Center, a smaller campus, and I think there's one in Westchester as well. But Fordham, I, I wouldn't say it necessarily has the athletics that Seton Hall has, but it has as great a sportscasting pedigree as just about any school in the country, save maybe Syracuse, which is a school that you know I wasn't really necessarily interested in going there, but I applied to Syracuse just to because a number of people had gone there, and I just wanted to see if I can get in. So you know, Syracuse has a great has a great reputation as a, a sportscasting school, a broadcasting school, as does Northwestern, as does Michigan, I believe. But Fordham was is so unique in that it has as alums the leading voices of some of the th three of the or maybe the three biggest sports teams not only in New York City but in the world 
Fordham is the alma mater of Michael Kay, who is the play-by-play voice of the New York Yankees for the Yes Network. It is the alma mater of Bob Papa, who is the radio play-by-play voice of the New York Football Giants. And it is the alma mater of Mike Breen, who is not only the TV play-by-play voice of the New York Knicks on MSG, but also the lead play-by-play voice of the NBA on ESPN and the NBA Finals for many, many years. So there is a rich history of sportscasting, not just in New York, but across the country, that comes out of Fordham. But despite all these fine broadcasters, the most famous alum, at least from that, you know, at least from that school within Fordham, is Vin Scully. Vin Scully was from the Bronx and graduated from Fordham in, I believe, 1949. And so it's it's because of that that I really wanted to go to Fordham. I put everything into that school. I attended so many open houses, took so many tours of that campus. And ultimately, I did not get in. I applied early decision, but I didn't have the grades, really. I I had awoken in my junior and my senior year, really, from kind of an academic and, uh, you know, a semi- a semi-slumber from both an academic and extracurricular standpoint for my first two years of high school. But I was fortunate fortunate enough to Seton Hall, and I'm very glad that I got in there. And maybe I can, not to say that I or anyone will leave in Scully, but maybe I can make my own mark on that school. Maybe even more so than someone like Bob Lee, who has had such an impact on his fellow Seton Hall alums. But it, it was because of Vince Scully that I so passionately wanted to go to Fordham. So Scully spent 67 seasons calling games for the Dodgers. That's the longest ever with a single team. And on top of that, he called games across two coasts. I can only imagine what that does for your personal life. We all, I, I always consider how tough it probably is to be a broadcaster to, and to try to manage a family, which a number of people, of course, do. And you see some broadcasters who you know, go through marital issues or otherwise because traveling takes such a toll. And so not only for Vin Scully to have uh, managed, I know his his first wife passed a number of years ago and he he remarried, but to not only manage two loving and very successful marriages, and I know he has a number of children and grandchildren, but to manage an entire family through not only travel for half the year, or more than half the year, actually, because he also did some football and some golf nationally, but to also live on multiple coasts. You might think, oh, he did the Brooklyn Dodgers for a long time. You forget that it was only the first 
nine years of his career that he actually did games in Brooklyn? Or, or eight years, rather. I think it was 1958 that the Dodgers moved out to Los Angeles. So the vast majority of that time was spent in Los Angeles. Imagine having to uproot your family across the country after living in New York for his entire life up until he would have been about 30 or 31 at that time, having to move that team out there, having to move his, his family out there. I can only imagine how difficult that was. Not only was he beloved, but ultimately just incredibly accomplished. For his career, he called both, both as a Dodger broadcaster and as a national broadcaster combined 25 World Series, 12 All-Star Games, 3 perfect games, 18 no-hitters, and 6 Dodger World Championships. He, he was alive for all 7 Dodger Championships, including the one in 2020. And then you think back to all his incredible calls. First and foremost, the you know the Kirk Gibson home run, which is probably, which is maybe the most beautifully cliched moment in sports, where you really could not have scripted it any better. Kirk Gibson hobbling off the bench against Dennis Eckersley. You know, back backdoor slider, I think, on three two pulls it in the right field seats to win it five to four, two run homer, down one in the ninth, game one of the World Series. I was watching. I I watched a little bit this morning of Scully's calls. And I pretty much memorized them word for word. High fly ball in a right field. She is gone. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. And he, he talks about how... I, you go to MLB, go on the MLB YouTube, and you'll find... It's like five minutes long. You'll find his entire call of that at bat, and it's incredible. And it's a madhouse at Dodger Stadium where he... You listen to a lot of his calls. That's another great characteristic of a great broadcaster. He'll let the crowd tell you the story after that initial call. Or it seemed like it almost seemed like Dodger Stadium. It could have been an earthquake. And he talked about you know people they, they don't want to go home. And then what else? You think about he did the the '86 World Series. Little roller up along first behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. That was is one of the great. It's not just the moment; it's the call. A lot of people do not real. A lot of younger people do not realize actually that Vin Scully was one of the great football broadcasters of his era. He did a lot of games for CBS nationally, including the catch. If you watch a, any clip of Joe Montana hitting Dwight Clark in the NFC Championship game, 49ers and the Cowboys, that's Vin Scully on the TV call. And he also did some... Golf, I know, for, I know for sure. Of course, CBS has covered uh, the Masters for so many years. But uh, you know, another couple ones I point: uh, Don Larson's perfect game, which I, I would imagine is even tougher to do. I think. I, I mean, he grew up in the Bronx, so it, this couldn't have been that hard. Not to mention, he was so wonderfully objective, 
even for how long he had worked for the Dodgers, and he is probably considered the premier Dodger. But, you know, the Don Larson throwing a perfect game against the Dodgers in the World Series, only pitcher ever to throw a perfect game in the World Series, only pitcher ever to throw a no-hitter in the postseason up until Roy Halladay's back in 2010, and none since then. Sandy Koufax's perfect game in 1965, the only one of his illustrious career. Hank Aaron's record-breaking home run. And again, that's that's one that comes against the Dodgers. People don't realize, actually, that, just quick tidbit, Bill Buckner is the left fielder for the Dodgers who is unable to, fe- who's unable to catch that ball. I just want to point that out. But if you listen to Scully's call, actually say, Buckner back to the fence. It is, and it's gone. And so I saw also today it's John Miller, who was another great broadcaster, by the way, and honestly rather underrated, especially for his time at ESPN. He's been the voice of the San Francisco Giants for many years and did Sunday Night Baseball with, with the late, great Joe Morgan for so long. But he talked about how one of the great calls in sports was Vin Scully's call of Hank Aaron's record-breaking home run, breaking Babe Ruth's record with 715 home runs. And he just kind of lets Atlanta-Fulton County Stadium go for a couple of minutes as they roar. Then eventually Vin Scully comes back on and says, you know, what a moment for for the Braves and for Atlanta, for what a moment for Georgia and the nation and country and the world. And he says... A black man in the Deep South is getting a standing ovation for breaking the record of an all-time great. And to think this was 1974. Lord knows, racial tensions are difficult to this day. But this was 1974. We were six years removed from the aforementioned Civil Rights Voting Act. We're ten years removed from the initial Civil Rights Act. And that ended... That ended essentially ended segregation for, you know, at least the majority of the country. You know, Lord knows there was still a lot of things that had to be done and still do have to be done. And that's why it's rather unfortunate that, you know, it's a call that that still is significant to this day. But, you know, and again, it's only 20 years removed from Brown versus the Board of Ed. And so Vin Scully just realized this was a transcendent moment. This was not just baseball. This was... This was... culture and society. And a, 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 a sheer joy. Because people also might forget, or not realize, younger people, that Hank Aaron, much like Jackie Robinson, 27 years earlier when he was making his debut, Hank Aaron was getting death threats for for the possibility that and the likelihood that he would break Babe Ruth's record. And Scully not, didn't ignore that. He acknowledged it and made a positive light of it. There's another moment that really wasn't even an athletic moment, but if you go back to Rick Monday, Rick Monday, who's a great ball player and actually hit a... I think a pen, essentially a pennant hitting home run for the pennant winning home run for the Dodgers in '81, but Rick Monday, actually who I think is also I want to say might also be the first number one draft pick in Major League history, 
Rick Monday was playing for the Dodgers. I believe he was playing for the Dodgers. And these two people run onto the field and they're going to burn a flag on the field. They're going to burn an American flag on the field. Now, you know, you have the right to do whatever in this country, but it's, you know, it's a rather unpatriotic act. And on top of that, you're going to do it not only in a public space, but on a baseball field. What's more, you know, there's always the, you know, baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. But seriously, you're going to burn an American flag on the field at Dodger Stadium. It's disgraceful. Rick Monday comes in and swipes up the flag and saves it. And, and Vince Scully's call, even of that moment, even though it's not really an athletic moment, is incredible. So, I, hey, if you've ever seen, it's not the best, it's no Field of Dreams necessarily, or even Bull Durham, but if you ever watch what I think is kind of an underrated movie, For Love of the Game, with Kevin Costner, Kevin Costner is plays Billy Chappell. It's, I think it's a good movie, but plays Billy Chappell, who is pitching what could be his last game in the major leagues, pitching at Yankee Stadium for the Detroit Tigers, a game that essentially means nothing to the Tigers. They're just trying to play spoiler. And, you know, it's kind of intercut with, with flashbacks throughout his life. There's this love story with the late Kelly Preston. And they also cut through, it's a Fox telecast. It's, I don't know if it's, if it's addressed as Fox, but it's Vin Scully and it's Steve Lyons on the call. And Vin Scully essentially calls this game. He calls Chapel's game through the World Series. And I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a great, it's, but there is a, a great call at the end of that game you know, that quote-unquote game within the movie. And it's because of that, actually, that Kevin Costner was the MC for Vin Scully's retirement ceremony at Dodger Stadium. It's really something that's so well done and fascinating. A couple more things here. I will say... Thank God, I've never been, but thank God the traffic in Los Angeles is so horrible because it just reminds people how great it actually was to listen to the ball game. Some people outside the Los Angeles area might not realize that for many years, Vin Scully's TV broadcast, and of course, for a number of years, he was by himself on the call by the end. And so to do that at age, what, I think like 89 when he retired, incredible, but, you know, Vince Scully was simulcast on TV and radio. That's how good he was. That's how much of a Nash of a, a, of a Los Angeles treasure, of a Dodger fan base treasure, and a national treasure that he was. And you know, people would li- like you know, you think of, when you think of people listening, you, you probably a lot of people make fun of people. You know, if they're listening to the game on on the radio while they're in the ballpark, and you think of Steve Bartman, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or whatever, but. Vince Scully's probably the one who made that popular. It's it's such an incredible thing. You go back to, you know, I read this article in the MLB app that was great about Clayton Kershaw paying tribute to Scully and talking about saying some nice things about him. Justin Turner, who I didn't realize was also a Southern California native, 
and just, you know, watching him, listening to him as a kid. Charlie Culberson talking about people, people might forget that one actually. The Vince Scully's last call. He didn't call the postseason in 2016, their final season, his final season, even though the Dodgers would eventually get to the NLCS and lose, but you know, for great reason if you're if you're a huge you know, historic baseball fan that they lost to the Cubs, who went on to win the World Series for the first time in 108 years. But the Dodgers won the division on the last, I think the la- the last or the second to last Sunday of the season, on a walk off home run by Charlie Culberson, that won them the division, and that was la- Vince Scully's last call at Dodger Stadium. Everybody takes off their you know division champion cap, they roll out these caps, and they tip their cap to Scully. Just an incredible moment, and the likes of which we don't really see that often. So Charlie Culberson talked about how incredible that was. And then Vin Scully, despite not traveling for most of that year, made the trip up to San Francisco, received this, this love and congratulations from, the, from giant fans and the people of San Francisco, and, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's especially something when you consider that's, that's an intense rivalry. Uh, you think of, you know, I, I, I always think of Brian Stowe, the gentleman who, you know, Dodger fans beat him up, giant fans, Dodger fans beat him up in the parking lot, Dodger Stadium went into a coma. And so it gets, unfortunately, that's just some of the worst of humanity. It's not a common thing, but it gets intense. And that's how beloved and wonderful Vin Scully is that he can bring out the best in people, that he can bring out the best in San Francisco Giant fans, that he can bring out the best in every fan. That he was so beloved and iconic. So, you know, I watched, I, on, on YouTube this morning, I watched a clip. Vin Scully was on Late Night with David Letterman. That's how long ago it was, Late Night with David Letterman. Of course, he's been off the late show for seven years. But it was late night, so this was 1990. This was May of 1990, and he was going to be calling a game at Shea Stadium that night, Dodgers and the Mets. And so, you know, it's wonderful watching this clip. I know Letterman is from Indianapolis. That's closer to Cincinnati, I guess, so he's a big Red fan. Oh, actually, funny, that th- now that I think about it, actually, the Reds won the World Series that year. But... It's funny how brilliant a prognosticator and how brilliant a mind he was, how ahead of his time he was, because even then, so Letterman had asked him, why do you think, you know, games are going 20 minutes longer on average, it seems like, why do you think that happens? And Scully's reasons were, one, starting pitchers, that's just it, they're starting pitchers, they don't finish games nearly as often. So you have to go to the bullpen. You have to get a you know a couple of couple extra guys in there. Number two. Now, albeit this one didn't age as well because, you know, unfortunately there are not a lot of base stealers anymore in this game. In this kind of post moneyball era, it's not something that happens as often. But pitchers, but it's still true. Pitchers throw far more often to first base, and he even said, I think. Uh, they throw over 208 times a game, which is, you know, it's, it's not unfair necessarily. And three, the commercials run longer. Now, I understand you've got to make money, but the commercial breaks are now, you know, two, three minutes. Not to mention it's so ridiculous where every time there's a mound visit 
or every time there's a little, a, just the least bit of stoppage in the action in any sport, you'll see an ad, and it's a split screen. And so we hadn't even gotten to that point yet. But th that's how far ahead of his time and, and how brilliant Vince Scully was that he could see all these things happening. And it, because God knows now that you know, games are running four hours. That's just wow. And then, even funnier, then Letterman asks, I think rather jokingly, but he asks if there's talk of going going to a seven-inning game. To which Scully responds, "You know that that's the mark of the that's the mark of the minor leagues." But it's just funny to think we had those seven-inning doubleheaders last year, and then we went away from them. I kind of I could I could get used to them compared to you know a National League DH or the stupid extra inning runner rule, but the it's funny to think that we actually got to that and how much that, that interview actually predicted and how much Scully actually predicted. He was 94 years old. He will be dearly missed. And I will say, I, I don't know if this quote just comes from this moment or it comes from earlier, but I remember someone having up a, holding up a sign when Derek Jeter retired and said, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. And that's all I can say about these two people and how fortunate we are to have had them on this earth for a combined 180-something something years, 182 years to have had them here. And, and may they rest in peace. However, the game goes on, and it is with that that we actually discuss the MLB trade deadline. And this was one of the more prolific trade deadlines in recent memory. I'm going to try to take it team by team. There, there were quite a number of deals, and you know I can't really go too in-depth with each one, but let's start with the Phillies acquiring David Robertson from the Cubs in exchange for number 26 pitching prospect, the number 26 overall prospect for the Phillies, their pitching prospect, Ben Brown. Cubs at least get some sort of return. Robertson had been rumored had been rumored to be shopped around to the Yankees, actually his former employer, but he goes to the Phillies, a team that has really suffered in the bullpen for a number of years now. That's been their downfall. Phillies also acquire a starter in Noah Syndergaard from the Angels for a number one, former number one pick Mickey Moniak and uh, Yadiel, or Yadiel Sanchez. Syndergaard, I apologize if I get that wrong, by the way. Syndergaard actually joins former Met, fellow former Met, former teammate Zach Wheeler. And it's going to be interesting because the Phillies play in Queens next weekend. Obviously, you know, Moniak hasn't really worked out. So it's, it's not really a high-risk deal necessarily for the Phillies or maybe for the Angels either. The Syndergaard had been signed to a one-year deal by the Angels. He comes back to the East Coast and to the NL East, and it should be interesting. The 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 welcome he gets when he returns to Queens, if he's slated to start in that weekend. Toronto Blue Jays make make a significant deal. They acquire two righty relievers and Anthony Bass and Zach Pop from the Marlins. 
in exchange for the number their number four prospect, shortstop third base uh, Jordan Groshans or, or Groshans. Pop hails from Brampton, Ontario. That's rather significant, and he goes alongside Canadian Canadian closer Jordan Romano. This might be the most underrated deal of the deadline. The Blue Jays also acquire Whit Merrifield from the Royals for number 16 prospect Samad Taylor and minor leaguer Max Castillo. Now, Merrifield is hitting 240 this season, but he is a great pure hitter who has been near the top of the hits totals in the league for quite a few years now, and he has never had a contending team around him. He has been maybe the best pure hitter in the game. Just a great pure singles hitter. And so if the Jays can get into the postseason and make a run, this is not to say he is at that level necessarily, but this is akin to them signing like Paul, uh, Paul Molitor when they won the World Series in 93. Just a, a really good veteran hitter, great with contact and, and great singles hitter. Not, not a bad base stealer either. The Twins acquire Jorge Lopez, be their new closer. They get him from the Orioles in exchange for their number 22 prospect, left-hander Cade Povich, right-handed pitcher Yenier Cano, righty Juan Nunez, and lefty Juan Rojas. Good return for the Orioles. They get four bodies. Lopez has a 1.68 ERA this year and made the all-star team, so that aids the twin bullpen. The Braves make a significant move in signing Austin Riley to a 10-year $212 million deal. Now, for a guy who was an MVP candidate last year, who they've obviously decided to retain despite losing you know, Jorge Soler, Freddie Freeman, quite a few guys, and trading away Will Smith from that championship core last year, this is a significant commitment. But considering, uh, you know, 10 years is a big commitment, but to get Austin Riley in at a potential NL MVP candidate last year for under $22 million a year, that's actually not awful. So a good deal for them, and he'll, he'll be in the infield for them for a long time. The Braves also made a big move to acquire Rysel Iglesias from the Angels in exchange for Jesse Chavez and lefty Tucker Davidson. That helps them when they trade for Smith. San Diego Padres extend San Diego's own San Diego native Joe Musgrove to a five-year, $100 million deal. Now, this is not just because he's from San Diego. It's not just because he threw the first no-hitter in franchise history, and the Padres finally ended that drought as being the last team to not throw a no-hitter in MLB history. But Musgrove has seriously earned the money. He is one of their better starters, maybe their best starter, with the possible exception of you, Darvish. They're giving him $20 million a year. He's worth it. It's a good deal. This one I, I question a bit. How, how much better really is Josh Hader when he has a, apparently an ERA above four this year? But they acquired Josh Hader in exchange for their closer, Taylor Rogers, who is second in the league in saves. Dennis Lamette and lefty pitching prospects, their number seven prospect, Robert Gasser, and their number 28 prospect, Asturi, Rodriguez, Asturi Ruiz, we really know how much a haterite is worth, at least according to the Padre front office, compared to Rodgers, considering, again, those are the top two in the NL. But the Padres do get a fireman closer. So, I mean, he can work multiple innings, so that's that's big for them, kind of like when they had when, when they brought in Brad Hand. But the bigger news for the Padres, of course, they acquire Juan Soto and Josh Bell 
in exchange for Luke Voigt, C.J. Abrams, Robert Hassel III, James Wood, Mackenzie Gore, and Harleen Susanna. Or Susanna. Now, this they give up a lot of bodies, but this is not a terrible deal. Again, Soto is, I mean, this could be a rental. I don't know. But Bell's been hitting very well this year. I mean, you have two guys who could be huge impact players for the long term for the Padres. Bell, I guess, will play first base, which is why it makes sense for Voigt to go the other way. Initially, they were going to trade Eric Hosmer, but apparently he had 10 teams, I believe, listed in his no-trade clause, forcing them to trade him to the Red Sox. I, I don't have any details on the return there. But Hosmer, of course, delaying the Soto deal, he goes to Boston. The Astros acquire Trey Mancini, who has a $10 million mutual option next year. In addition, they get right-handed pitcher Jaden Murray. It's a three-team deal, by the way. The Rays get a good return. The Rays get Jose Siri, so a solid outfielder. So they are sacrificing a little bit of defensive outfield help. But Mancini is a bat that they need. Their, bat, their lineup has gotten... A little bit weaker with the loss of Correa in this past offseason. So that, that's a big one. The Orioles get right-handed pitchers Seth Johnson and Chase McDermott. The Astros also improve their lineup by acquiring Christian Vasquez in exchange for minor league infielder Emmanuel Valdez and outfielder William Abreu in just kind of a weird, kind of a weird deadline for the Red Sox in that they traded away Vasquez, but they brought in Hosmer, so you don't know what exactly they're doing. So the Yankees also put a little bit of a confusing deadline in that they, they made some moves. They got Andrew Benintendi in exchange for three pitching prospects, none of their really significant prospects, by the way. Beckway, Chandler Champlain, and TJ Sykema, righty, righty, lefty. They also acquire Scott Efros from the Cubs in exchange for their number seven prospect, right-handed pitcher Hayden Wisniewski. That is adding... To, that's a good move for the Cubs because it adds to their organizational organizational pitching depth with Ben Brown in that Phillies deal, that Robertson deal. Yankees also got some pitching in that they acquire Frankie Montas and Lou Trevino for the number five prospect left-handed pitcher Ken Waldachuk, number 20 J.P. Sears, number 10 right-handed pitcher Luis Medina, and number 21 second baseman Cooper Bowman. couple of maybe not blue-chip prospects, but more significant prospects. Montas has a 3.18 ERA this year with a struggling A's team. Trevino is a guy they will really need in the bullpen with Chapman still kind of recuperating. Holmes taking over the closer's job. And then, you know, the injuries to Green done for the year. We don't know what, what has happened to Zach Britton, really. So that's a pretty significant deal. The Yankees, however, trade Jordan Montgomery, I suppose, just because they think Montas is going to be better but I still don't quite understand the deal because he was a great homegrown pitcher who just did not get a lot of run support, but pitched very well, I thought. And I don't quite understand this deal. They, they trade him to the Cardinals. Good deal for St. Louis. They need pitching. The Cardinals trade away Harrison Bader. It's kind of a weird deal when you consider they've traded a starter, a starting pitcher for Bader, who could be their fourth outfielder, when the Yankees have also traded Joey Gallo, although that makes a lot of sense, Gallo, very much underperformed, maybe not last year so much as he did this year. It got kind of, the fans got rather harsh, and that's unfortunate because it's not like he didn't, you know, you know, if you want to boo somebody, if you want to boo your own player, 
boo that player because they're they're not giving their best effort, not because they're just not succeeding. So it, you know, it's ra- rather unfair to Gallo. He's from the Las Vegas area, went to high school with uh, Bryce Harper and I believe Chris Bryant. So for him to go to the Dodgers is pretty much best case scenario. Yankees somehow get a decent return. They get the Dodgers' number 15 prospect. But, uh, yeah, I guess that's why they get Bader. I, I guess that's something they needed, although I f- still feel like they could have called up Miguel Andujar to be a fourth or fifth outfielder. On the other side of town, the Mets acquire Tyler Naquin from Cleveland in addition to left-handed pitcher Philip Deal. They trade away Jose Acuna and Hector Rodriguez. Naquin was a big impact, impact player for Cleveland when they won the pennant in 2016. You might remember his walk-off inside the park homer against the Blue Jays in that regular season. So that's that's a good bat to have off the bench and occasionally play corner outfield to start. The Mets also with an interesting deal. They acquired Darren Ruff from the Giants for J.D. Davis, albeit who, who had struggled, but they also give up multiple prospects and they pick up a lot of age and that Ruff is 36, but he's a big, bet, big veteran bat and we'll see what happens there. They also acquire... Right-handed pitcher Michael Givens, something they definitely needed, a, a bullpen arm from the Cubs in exchange for uh, Saul Gonzalez. Givens, a good veteran reliever, 2.66 ERA on the year. And then the Mariners making a huge deal, acquiring Luis Castillo from the Reds in exchange for the organization's number one, three, and five prospects, as well as right-handed pitching prospect Andrew Moore. So it... Two infielders and two pitchers out of those four. The Mariners, I've mentioned for how long I told I, you know, I've said it on past broadcasts or past podcasts that you know Lou Pinella had said 20 years ago, you know, why aren't we making a deal at the deadline? Mar- then Mariners CEO Howard Lincoln had said, you know, the, the goal of the Mariners isn't to win the World Series every year, it's to field a competitive team and hope at some point to win the World Series. It's a disappointing quote. We know how how much their front office has struggled in the last year. This is the deal that Mariner fans have been looking for. They get a true ace, and it's showing because right now they look like they are going to take a series from the Yankees in New York, as a matter of fact, as Castillo is dominated and and the Mariners blew up Garrett Cole in the first inning for six runs. That's what I've got right now. But, yeah, a big deal for the Mariners that could make them an even bigger contender. Now, the Astros are still running away with the American League West, but like the Padres, and again, the Padres are now, if they weren't before, they are now definitely one of the most feared lineups in baseball, and that's crazy to think considering they are 12 games back of the Dodgers, at least going into yesterday, in the National League West in second place. So that's how much bigger the wild cards are this year. When you look at the Mariners, when you look at the Padres, when you look at the Blue Jays, because the Yankees have a big get, uh, a big lead on them for first place, that's how big the wild cards are now. When you throw in that that six seed, as I actually just got the update, Castillo went six and two thirds, and he's he's done giving up one run. Fine outing for him against a dominant Yankee offense, and so yeah, that that could be huge for Seattle to maybe come in and try to play with Houston and the Yankees, probably the two favorites in the American League. There were a couple of NHL moves that I thought were a, a bit significant this past week. One of them is that the New York Rangers gave Capocaco a two-year extension 
worth $4.2 million. I think that's a steal when you consider that the Alexi Lafreniere, Philip Heedle, Capococco line was the most consistent line and the most reliable line, maybe not the best line, but the most consistent and reliable line for the Rangers this postseason, especially with their youth. They had some incredible shifts, scored when they when the Rangers needed it the most. And so for, for the Rangers to get Kako for just $2.1 million and only his, what, I think his, going into his fourth and fifth seasons, I believe, that's really something big, especially when they lost guys like Vetrano and Kopp during the offseason. So that's a big deal. The Anaheim Ducks make, I think, a rather under-the-radar move. Signing, signing John Klingberg to a one-year deal. He had 47 points last year for the Stars. He had that big goal in Game 6 in overtime a couple of years ago against the Predators to put them in the second round, that overtime goal. He's a guy who can score, and he's a good stand-up defenseman. So that's another big signing for the Ducks, who are going to get better. They signed, I mentioned Vetrano. And they also, you know, they have a great young player in Trevor Zegras. So that, that's a team that's on the rise, I think. NFL, there were a few pieces of news. First and foremost, I know we'll talk about Watson in a second, but first and foremost, the Miami Dolphins forfeit two draft picks and owner Stephen Ross is suspended through October 17th and fined $1.5 million for contacting Sean Payton prior to his re- retirement announcement. So he is fined for tampering. I assumed when I heard the when I heard that Ross was being suspended that it had to do with Brian Flores' allegations that he not even anything with the with a racial aspect, but Brian Flores' allegations that Ross wanted him to tank. And so I mean it's gotta be hard to find evidence of that, but thank goodness that the NFL did find a way to suspend Ross over, you know, uh, whether it is that allegation or another one. But yeah, that's very serious. I feel like it has more to do with that Flores allegation just because, I mean, teams tamper. And not to mention, Peyton didn't even go to another team. He retired. I mean, he's supposed to be maybe coming back after a year, but it's, it's wild. You don't usually see fines fines or suspensions this significant for tampering. So I wonder if maybe the NFL did know, or if the NFL just couldn't prove, but did know that Ross did perhaps more. Because again, I mentioned when Flores announced those allegations, or made that accusation that, you know, it's a significant claim, and I doubt Flores would really go out of his way just to, you know, just to sacrifice his career for something that was false. And and, tamper, and uh, tanking is just far too common in the NFL or in, or in most sports, anywhere, or maybe not the MLB because the draft isn't as significant, maybe not even the NHL, but I'd say the NFL, most notably, you know, there's a lot of tanking and it's very unfortunate. It's, it's almost encouraged sometimes. So glad they got that done. One place where I think there was a little lenient and, of course, an independent contractor, a judge, a former judge, I believe, actually, made this decision that Deshaun Watson would only be suspended six games. I think that is rather tame when you consider the history of suspensions in the NFL. You know, I know Watson was never booked on criminal charges, but then again, 
none of these, like most of these guys don't. It's unfortunate. Most of these guys get off and they don't get any criminal charges because, well, let's face it, so, it happens so often in the NFL. It's unfortunate, but it's true. It happens so often in the NFL in particular for you know domestic violence charges or, in this case, sexual violence charges. And the NFL is the only one. It's not our legal system. It's the NFL is the, that's the only one that actually does anything about it. But I still think this is not enough. When you look at you know suspensions in recent memory, I think Greg Hardy had ten games, but I saw something today where it was a lot of the recent suspensions, and maybe once had anyone admitted to guilt or even been charged. And it's not like you know when you get accused by one. I, I probably mentioned this when you get accused by one person, two people maybe three, you know, it's kind of, he said, she said, or he said, he said, she said, she said, they said, they said, whatever. It's a little tougher to decipher. But when you have, what was it? I think it was 22 women making accusations. And I know that, look, some people in this world, unfortunately, are just in it for the money. I, I think some people, you know, there, there are people, I think, it's a sad reality, but I think there are some people who make accusations just for money. But if 22 people are accusing you of sexual misconduct, or worse, one of them has to be telling the truth. So I, I think it's rather unfortunate that he only got six games when you consider you know, Tom Brady. And I still thought Tom Brady should have been suspended, but maybe for one game when you consider Ray Rice got suspended only two. Uh, when Tom Brady got suspended four games for deflating footballs, you know, it's just, it's just inconsistent. And, and you know, Deshaun Watson got suspended six, but the fact that the NFLPA hasn't has said, you know, we'll accept that deal, I think the NFL should absolutely pursue a longer suspension because there obviously is no real justice within the legal system when some of these things happen. So, you know, I, I think... The fact that he's been out, I mean, maybe the fact that he's been out for a year probably helps. But with the Texans, I don't know if the Texans really would have played him anyway. Because they said, like almost, like after not a long time, they said we're trying to trade him. So I don't know, but it's just rather disappointing that, you know, the you can be accused by 22 women I believe it's 22 women of sexual misconduct of some sort, some gross form of sexual harassment, and you could be signed to a long-term deal. You're going to miss six weeks. That's that's it. You're going to miss six weeks. That's all. You're not going to jail. You're not going to. You're not fired. No. And so I really, I don't know. It's just a, it's just a really unfortunate example set by Watson in particular, but set by a number of people. 49ers signed Debo Samuel to a three-year, $73.5 million extension. Considering all the Watson drama, it's, uh, it's kind of perfect timing for them to make this deal when for so long the focus was, you know, Samuel's going to hold out, he's not going to play, and there was so much... 
drama between the 49er front office and Debo Samuel, but the fact that they're giving him over $24 million a year is incredible, but he's, he's maybe the most versatile, maybe not the best, but maybe the most versatile receiver in the National Football League, and so it's a very promising sign for 49ers fans to ink him long-term. And the Jets, I think, make a rather underrated signing at bringing in Quan Alexander to a one-year deal. was big in New Orleans and in San Francisco. It brings some validity to a young linebacking core, and it's, it's just a good deal that I like. K.J. Wright retires after 11 seasons, spent 10 with the Seahawks, 1 with the Raiders, signed a one-day deal to retire with the Seahawks. Six interceptions for his career, 13 and a half sacks, more of a great, he was a great run stopper, 11 forced fumbles, 9 fumble recoveries, 992 combined tackles, Pro Bowler in 2016, and most importantly, won Super Bowl 48 with the Seattle Seahawks, that dominating performance against perhaps the greatest single-season offense of all time, the 2014, make that 2013 Denver Broncos behind Peyton Manning, a 43-8 victory. And, you know, one of the more underrated aspects of that defense, we always think Legion of Boom, we think of Sherman and Cam Chancellor, and we think of that secondary, but this was a very, very strong linebacking core along with, you know, probably a future Hall of Famer, Bobby Wagner, and a number, of other, a number of other great players. And K.J. Wright was part of a very strong front seven. A very, very solid run stopper. Because remember, the Broncos had a pretty good run game as well. The 49ers were very predicated on the run game, the team that they faced in the NFC Championship game, not only with Colin Kaepernick, but with Frank Gore. So that was rather important. Also led the Seahawks to, again, they probably should have won Super Bowl Forty Nine made nine playoff appearances in 11 seasons. In those playoff games, in 16 playoff games, he had one pick, two sacks, 111 tackles. And it's unfortunate to leave on some sad news here, but it's something I found out while recording the podcast, and that is that Paige Beckers of UConn has torn her left ACL, and she will miss the entire 2022-2023 college basketball season Huge loss for UConn. She has maybe been their most impactful player since, I don't know, maybe since Maya Moore. But really unfortunate. Not only that, she's probably the face of women's college basketball, maybe women's basketball in general. So, you know, see if she plans to stick around. I would hope she sticks around at UConn and doesn't just try to make the jump to the WNBA. But... Best of luck to her. That does it for us this week. I very much appreciate your time. Stay cool out there if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and you're in this area because, you know, heat wave going around once again. And that'll do it. See you next time on Sports in the Waiting Room. All right, I'm just going to plug this in at the end. Here's a little afterthought, little postscript that, you know, I cut out a little bit of stuff and I just found out here at the end of the podcast as I was getting ready to to put it up, that the NFL will appeal Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension and try to increase the punishment levied against him. So I think just wonderful news to see that he actually gets some sort of, I don't know, relatively reasonable comeuppance 
and punishment in what is just a, a nonsensical criminal system and you know, just for victims in general.